0: Those of us who are uh, not new moms and dads are still trying to figure it out, but uh, so pray for the rest of us too, right? But uh, no, it's so good to be together. It's good to be back after being sick last week, and I do want to thank Joey and and multiple other people who uh, flexed and and moved into different roles, and they were expecting last week um, as I wasn't even going to preach in the first place, actually. Spencer Martin was, but he was sick too, and so we were thankful for uh, people stepping in to preach the word and to share uh, ministry last Sunday. Now we're on March uh, 5th today. It's the first Sunday of the month, and every time we have one of these first Sundays, at some point in our service, one of our elders steps into the pulpit, not to preach a sermon, but to lead us through what we call the Lord's Supper. Uh, the elder will give instructions on who should and who shouldn't participate in the supper and then we'll sing a song together as we do the deacons will take these plates here and they'll pass out bread and grape juice or wine and finally uh, we will give thanks to God for the supper and together we will eat the bread and drink the juice We do this once a month at Redeemer. Some churches do it more frequently. Others do it a little less frequently. But every true church participates regularly in this special meal that we call the Lord's Supper. Why do we do this? What's the meaning of it? Why is it so important that we participate in it? Let me answer first with an analogy. Imagine, if you need to, that you are parents of teenagers. Some of you don't need to imagine that. But imagine that your parents are teenagers, and and they have cars, and they have jobs, and they have sports, and they have friends. And pretty soon you realize that you never see each other anymore. What do you do? You institute a weekly family meal. One night a week, the cars will be parked in the driveway, the phones will be put away, and the family will sit together and enjoy a meal. Why would you do that? Because through that weekly rhythm of that meal, each member of the family gets to remember and enjoy what it means to actually be a family. This is kind of what the Lord's Supper is like. It's the church's family meal that we come together for, and in it, it renews our sense of identity as God's family. You can open your Bibles to Matthew 26. We're continuing our series through Matthew called Following the Fulfillment. And this morning, we have the great opportunity before we take the Lord's Supper together to look into the origin of this family meal as Jesus first gave it to his disciples. Our passage is Matthew 26, verses 14 through 29. Matthew 26, we're going to begin reading in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Church, what are we doing when we take the Lord's Supper? This morning we're going to see that whenever we take the Lord's Supper we're doing three things. We are enjoying Jesus's friendship. We are embracing Jesus's sacrifice and we're anticipating Jesus's return. We're enjoying Jesus's friendship. We are enjoying our communion with Christ. We're embracing his sacrifice. We're embracing the covenant that he has brought us into through his sacrifice, and we're anticipating the consummation, we're anticipating Jesus' return. As we think about each of these things this morning, my prayer is that we will grow in cherishing the Lord's Supper as a wonderful gift to us. Not something that we should do or something that we have to do, but something that we get to do, something that we can't wait to do, Once a month, as we gather together, because it is such a wonderful gift. In the Lord's Supper, first, we enjoy Jesus' friendship. We enjoy Jesus' friendship. Now I want to ask, have you ever been hurt by a friend? Has a friend of yours ever gone behind your back? Most, if not all of us, could say yes to those questions. We know the pain of betrayal, but listen, no one knows it better than Jesus does. No one's been hurt like a friend, by a friend like Jesus has. And before we get to the supper, Matthew tells us that one of Jesus' friends, one of the twelve disciples, was conspiring against him. We see it in verses 14 through 16. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? and they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. So up to this point in the Gospel of Matthew, there has not been even a hint of evidence that Judas would betray Jesus like this. He was one of the 12. He had left everything to follow Jesus. He was a witness to all the miracles of Jesus. He even would have participated in the ministry that Jesus gave the disciples to do. And yet, it seems that as the cross drew nearer, And as it became more obvious to Judas that Jesus was not the Messiah that he thought he was going to be, it seems that Judas became disillusioned with Jesus. And ultimately, he decided to turn against him. He went to the chief priests, ready to hand Jesus over, but also wanting to make sure he gets some sort of return for this act of betrayal. What will you give me if I hand him over to you? And the price that they agreed on was 30 pieces of silver. Just to put that in perspective, this was the same value that the Old Testament law assigned to a slave if if a slave had died by the hand of someone's animal, 30 pieces of silver. This was the equivalent of about four months' wages. It was really little more than what a severance package would be today. And to Judas, this was enticing enough to follow through with the act. This was enticing enough to betray Jesus. He took the silver, and he began to look for his chance to hand him over. It's with this looming betrayal in the background, this looming betrayal in our minds, that Matthew moves the narrative forward to the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It's a Thursday, and all of Jerusalem is getting ready to observe the Passover feast that evening, including Jesus' disciples. Look at verses 17 through 19. Now, this certain man is, is somewhat mysterious. We don't know if Jesus had um, talked to this man before, if this is this is a verse that speaks to his own just control and sovereignty and all these things. But what we need to see is that when the disciples ask Jesus where they should prepare to eat the Passover, Jesus has already made arrangements. Jesus knows that his time is at hand. That is, he knows that the time of his death. Is at hand. He knows that the hour has come. In just a few short hours, he's going to be arrested and crucified. And so he has prearranged in Jerusalem a place to share a special Passover meal with his disciples. And this brings us to the meal itself. Don't miss the sweetness of verse 20. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. Some of our most cherished memories are times we've shared with friends and family over a meal. I'm sure you can think of one right now, a time that that you were with your family or some friends at a meal. It's especially the case if the meal had a sense of finality to it. Maybe maybe it was a final get-together with your friends before you moved to a new city. Maybe it was the final meal of a family vacation. Well, here Jesus and his disciples are enjoying this supper together, and Jesus knows that this will be his final supper with them before his death. And we can only imagine the sweetness of the time of fellowship that they were sharing, the encouragement that would have been to Jesus to sit with his friends and to share this meal together. But at some point during the meal, Jesus begins preparing them for what's to come. Verses twenty one to twenty five. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him, one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. You know, at the beginning of this passage, we see what Judas is doing. We see him going to the chief priest secretly and and agreeing and conspiring, plotting to betray Jesus. And our assumption at that point is naturally that Judas is up to something that Jesus knows nothing about. Our assumption would be that Judas is engaged in this act of treachery. and, And as the audience, we're just waiting to see what happens. But here we realize that this was not the case. Jesus knew what Judas was up to. Jesus knew he would be betrayed. And Jesus chose to let it happen. We've all been hurt by a friend. But who has ever chosen to be hurt by a friend? So why did Jesus? Why would Jesus choose this and allow this and and go through this? Because... Jesus said, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Jesus chose to be betrayed by Judas because Jesus knew what the scriptures said about his messianic mission. Listen to the words of King David in Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. See, that was David's experience, but Jesus is the son of David. Jesus chose to be betrayed by Judas because of his mission as the son of David. Just as King David's sufferings included the suffering of betrayal by a friend, so Jesus, the greater son of David, would suffer in that same pattern. But here's what all this means for you and me today. Here's what we need to understand and make of this particular suffering. Jesus chose to be betrayed by his friend... In order to make us his friends. Jesus chose to be betrayed by his friend in order to make us his friends. This, this is what we must remember when we think of the suffering of Jesus in Judas's betrayal. We must remember that we ourselves were enemies of Christ. Judas was not more evil than the other disciples and we are not any better than Judas. Left to ourselves, we would have done the same thing. We ourselves are guilty of devaluing Jesus, just as Judas did. We're guilty of exchanging Jesus for lesser treasures in this world. We have done this. But the wonderful reality is that Jesus shared bread with his friend-turned-enemy so that we who were enemies could enjoy his friendship. By choosing to be betrayed by Judas, Jesus was extending friendship to us. And when we take the Lord's Supper, as this whole scene of betrayal looms behind it and through the supper, when we take the supper, we need to understand that we are receiving this offer of Jesus' friendship. The Lord's Supper will forever be bound with Judas' act of betrayal. And this teaches us who sit at the supper that this is truly a holy fellowship meal that we who were enemies with Jesus now enjoy friendship with him, our Lord and our Savior and our friend. When we take the supper, we're enjoying friendship with Jesus. But church, we need to not take this invitation lightly. When Jesus told the disciples, one of you will betray me, consider the response of the eleven, and then consider the response of Judas. The eleven, in their sorrow, ask, is it I, Lord? Notice Judas asks the same question, though he does not call him Lord. Is it I, Rabbi? Think about that. They ask that question in their sorrow. They ask that question because they love Jesus and and they don't want to betray him. Judas asks it in a spirit of complete hypocrisy. Judas knew that Jesus was talking about him. Judas knew that he would betray Jesus, and yet he had the audacity to pretend before Jesus that he was just like the other disciples in that moment. Listen to the sobering warning of Jesus again. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. What fate is there that is so terrible that to never have lived at all in the first place would be better? It's the fate of everlasting judgment under the wrath of God. That is the only thing in which it would be better not to have been born than to face that wrath. This is what Judas faced, and this is what all false disciples face. This is what all face who come hypocritically but not truly in faith. In the Lord's Supper, we enjoy the friendship of Jesus, but only those who have turned away from their enmity are invited to the table. Only those who have turned away from that spirit of hatred and betrayal and treachery against Jesus are invited to enjoy that friendship. This is why Paul gives the instruction in 1 Corinthians 11, 27, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner Will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Church, this morning Jesus extends his friendship to us. But before we sit down to enjoy this holy fellowship meal with Christ, we need to examine our lives. Have we repented of our sins? We need to examine our hearts have we put away our enmity toward Christ. Come to the table this morning in a spirit of repentance and enjoy fellowship with the one who was betrayed to make you his friend. In the Lord's Supper, we enjoy Jesus' friendship. Second, in the Lord's Supper, we embrace Jesus' sacrifice. We embrace Jesus' sacrifice. We come now to the weighty words of Jesus as he instituted the Lord's Supper in verses 26 to 28. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's begin by thinking about these words, this is my body, this is my blood. Church for centuries now, different Christian traditions have sought to make more of these words than they actually mean, than what Jesus meant. So I want to say first, here's what Jesus is not saying in these words. He's not saying, as Roman Catholic doctrine teaches, that the bread and the wine become his physical body and blood. That's not what's happening in the supper. These elements don't become the the physical body and blood of Jesus, and he is not sacrificed again in the supper. He's also not saying, as Lutheran doctrine teaches, that the, the presence of Christ is going to be above and around and underneath the bread and the wine. He's also not saying, as some Reformed traditions would even say, that the bread and the wine contain the spiritual presence of Christ within them. Church, the physical elements that are in front of me of the bread and the wine that we take in the Lord's Supper are as ordinary as the waters of baptism are when we baptize. There's nothing mystical about them. There's nothing spiritual about them. There's no change that takes place to them through a prayer of consecration. There's no special quality in them that does anything for us simply by the act of physically partaking of them. They are ordinary. What do these words mean then? Simply this. The bread, this bread, represents my body. This wine represents my blood. As the English theologian J.C. Ryle put it, the bread and the wine are visible, tangible emblems. Visible, tangible emblems. In other words, they are symbols. Just as baptism is a symbolic act that signifies gospel truth to us, so the bread and the wine are symbols that likewise signify the truth of the gospel to us. They benefit us not because of any inherent spiritual power in the elements themselves, but only, only as we comprehend by faith what it is that they signify. When we comprehend the symbolic meaning of the elements and take them by faith, then we are spiritually benefited. And so what we need to know is what gospel truth do they signify? Well, he says of the bread, this is my body. The bread represents the body of Jesus Christ, but not merely the body of Jesus as it was in his life. Understand, Jesus broke the bread and then gave it to the disciples. Just as Christ broke the bread and gave it to his disciples, the bread represents the body of Jesus as it would soon be broken. And so the bread signifies to us the sufferings of Christ. The bread signifies to us that the Son of God truly took on our humanity. And then in his real and true human body, he was stripped and he was scourged and he was crucified. The bread signifies to us the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The broken bread of the Lord's Supper symbolizes the substitutionary sufferings of Jesus Christ. The Son of God became the Son of Man. He took on a true human body. And in our place, that body suffered for us. And then Jesus says, this is my blood. Of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So what does the cup signify? Jesus says it represents his blood. What we need to understand is that blood is another word for sacrifice. When Jesus says this is my blood he's speaking of his sacrifice. You see for generation after generation the Israelites had offered animal sacrifices to make atonement for their sins and remain in a covenant relationship with God. But what we learn in the Bible is that these sacrifices that the Israelites offered were actually insufficient to remove their true guilt. The blood of bulls and goats could never actually take away their sin. They were shadows that pointed ahead to the one sufficient sacrifice that God himself would provide. The sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the Son of God who had become a sinless man. And we know that this is what Jesus meant because he tells us that his blood would be poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do you remember when the angel announced to Joseph all the way back in Matthew 1, Call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Well, here we see how Jesus would do this, by sacrificing himself for us. Scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death, but Jesus sacrificed himself in our place to save us from the death that we deserve to die. And because he poured out his blood for many, the many can be forgiven of sin. This is what the blood represents, his sacrifice which saves us from our sin. Now, there's more we need to say. What is the result of this forgiveness? Notice, Jesus says, this is the, my blood of the covenant. My blood of the covenant. You see, forgiveness is not an end in itself. Let me ask you, why do you want to be forgiven of your sins? Why should we want that? Why is forgiveness good news? It's because through forgiveness, we are brought into an everlasting covenant relationship with God. Through forgiveness, we're brought into covenant relationship with God. This will be on the screen. Listen to how the prophet Jeremiah described this covenant in Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. They will all know me, for I will forgive their sin. Forgiveness leads to knowing God. Forgiveness leads to covenant relationship with God. Because of forgiveness, he can be our God, we can be his people. Church, do you see in those words how this covenant is contrasted with the old covenant that God made with his people? That covenant was made when God took them by the hand to bring them up out of the land of Egypt. That covenant was made when the Passover happened. That covenant was made through the redemption of Passover. The very Passover that they were just commemorating at this meal. But here's what Jesus is saying. There's going to be a greater redemption through a greater sacrifice that results in a greater covenant. Not a deliverance from physical slavery through a slaughtered lamb resulting in a covenant that they couldn't keep. No, it's going to be deliverance from our slavery to sin through Jesus, the Lamb of God, resulting in a new covenant relationship that our sins can never break. All of this, church, is represented in the cup. The cup symbolizes Jesus' redemptive sacrifice for our sin That brings us into covenant relationship with God. Now notice one more thing. Jesus says, poured out for many. Poured out for many. Not all, but many. And here's my question for you this morning. Here's the question that each one of us needs to answer. Am I one of the many? Here's what Jesus did... He poured out his blood for the forgiveness of many, but do I know that Jesus did this for me? Do I know that he died for my sins and that I am included in this new covenant community? Am I part of the many? The way we know that we are is by faith. By faith. And this is what eating the bread and drinking the cup is all about. When we take the bread and drink the cup, We are personally proclaiming, not merely that Jesus died for many, but that Jesus died for me. When we take the bread and drink the cup, we are embracing Jesus' sacrifice by faith. Jesus invites you, take and eat. Drink it, all of you. Eat the bread that represents his sufferings in your place. Drink the cup that represents his sacrifice for your sins. Come to the table this morning and declare by faith the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. In the Lord's Supper, we enjoy Jesus' friendship. We embrace Jesus' sacrifice. And finally, in the Lord's Supper, we anticipate Jesus' return. We anticipate Jesus' return. As we've already seen, it's not a coincidence that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper during the Passover feast. Just as in the Passover, God delivered his people from slavery through a sacrificial lamb, so through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, God delivers us from slavery to sin. (coughs) But the similarities don't end there. What was, think about it, the ultimate hope? Of the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt. It wasn't merely deliverance from Egypt. It wasn't just to get out of Egypt. It was deliverance to the Promised Land. The Passover was an act of redemption that pointed forward to the consummation, living as God's people in God's kingdom. That was the hope. With that in mind, look at the final thing Jesus says in verse 29. I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. You see, just as the Passover pointed forward to life in the promised land, so the Lord's Supper points forward to eternal life in the kingdom of God. Today, while Jesus' presence is here with us by his spirit, Jesus is not physically with us. He has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, And right now, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. But a day is coming, and we heard this in Matthew 24 and 25, a day is coming when Jesus will return to this world in glory, and he will judge all those who have not repented of their sins, and he will establish his church, his people, in God's kingdom forever. And on that day, here's what the Bible says we will do. We will enjoy a feast with Jesus. We'll enjoy supper with Jesus again. Listen to the words of Isaiah 25. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord, we have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Church family, what are your sorrows today? What are your sorrows? What are the things that are bringing you to tears in your life right now? What are the sufferings that you're bearing under right now? We need to remember that we live in the already and the not yet. We have been delivered from sin through the sacrificial death of Jesus, but we have not arrived in the life of God's kingdom we still, we're still still here. We remain in a sin-broken world. And in this sin-broken world, we experience much sorrow and much suffering. But when we take the Lord's Supper, when we come to the table, we not only look back at our deliverance, we look forward to the consummation. We look forward to the kingdom. We look forward to the return of Christ. We don't just look back at Jesus' sacrifice for our sins. We look forward to the day that we see him in his glory. Listen, right now we are waiting, but on that day we will not be waiting anymore. Just as those words in Isaiah said, we will say, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him. We we have, as in we did. We were waiting, but we're not waiting anymore. He's here. Our waiting is over. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That day is coming, and that is what the Lord's Supper reminds us of. We're anticipating his return. This morning, as you eat the bread and drink the cup, let the Lord's Supper fortify your faith in your waiting. Let the Lord's Supper strengthen you for these momentary sorrows and these momentary sufferings and these momentary afflictions. Let the Lord's Supper remind you that one day we will feast with Jesus in the kingdom of God. Church, the Lord's Supper is an invitation from Jesus to us. As I meditated this week, I wrote just a simple reflection on what it is that Jesus is offering to us in the supper. And I want to invite you to just take this moment to reflect on Christ's invitation to you today. Jesus, you're inviting me, though I was your enemy, to sit with you and share a feast, your friendship, Lord, you offer me jesus you're inviting me to take the bread of calvary to drink the cup and share the feast redemption lord you offer me jesus you're inviting me to follow you in suffering until the coming kingdom feast your promise lord you offer me jesus is inviting us this morning to enjoy his friendship to embrace his sacrifice, to anticipate his return. And as we prepare to take the supper now, as the music team comes up this morning, if you are walking in repentance of your sins and you're placing your faith in Jesus Christ alone as your Savior, then receive this invitation. Receive the invitation to the supper and enjoy this family meal by faith that he is our Savior and he is our King and he is our friend. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning, and we pray that your word would fill our minds and our hearts by faith as we take this supper now. As we receive the bread and the cup, show us your son. Let us comprehend what these elements symbolize and draw our hearts to enjoy friendship with Jesus, to embrace the sacrifice of Jesus for us and to anticipate his return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.